everyone, and welcome to another episode of our podcast series, Inside Tech, Done Deal, where we look at the who, the what, and the why of technology deals across the APAC region. My name is Malika Chandrasegran, and I'm a partner in the corporate team in Sydney specialising in M&A and other strategic transactions with a focus on the tech sector. I'm so excited to be joined by my co-host, Mia Harrison-Kelf, senior associate in the team who also focuses on tech. Hi everyone, can't wait to jump into all things tax today with you, Malika. Yes, good spoiler alert there. We're joined by our super expert on tax, Toby Eggleston, to tell us all about everything important in tax on tech transactions. Yes, nerd alert. It's great to be here though, Malika and Mia. But before we jump into it, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today, or I should say on the land on which we're recording this podcast from today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Thanks, Malika. So maybe just before we jump in, I'll give everyone a kind of bit of a view on my spoiler alert alert trend and say I can't wait to jump into, Toby, various topics, including what the regulators are thinking about at the moment, both FERB and ATO various kind of issues that come up on check transactions such as script for script rollover, earnouts and retention payments and option schemes, ways that we're bridging value gaps on tech transactions in current markets, as well as some classic issues that come up as we're negotiating tech deals. Yes, excited to, to dive into it. Look, the first thing I wanted to touch on is actually a topic that is quite near and dear to me, which is the interaction with FERB and tech transactions. And obviously, as we've always talked about, you know, the ATO gets involved in the FERB process and requests quite a lot of information and assesses the transaction in situations where a transaction needs to come before FERB, which is our foreign investment authority. So tell me a bit about that. Toby and what you're seeing the ATO focused on in the context of acquirers who need FERB approval in order to acquire a tech asset in Australia. Thanks, Malika. So FERB, as you mentioned, focuses on a couple of things, but national security and tax are key matters that where FERB really does a very deep dive. And from a tax perspective, certainly over the last couple of years, the ATO has really inserted itself into the process and, and been very proactive in looking at structures and determining whether there's anything that may be problematic from their perspective. In respect of all transactions, not just tech, they're very focused on financing structures and so how much debt is going to be introduced into the target structure. So in this regard, the ATO's main focus is on is there going to be any material impact to the national revenue? And so if you're introducing a whole load of shareholder debt from offshore into the target structure whereby the Australian group is going to be paying interest offshore, then that is going to be generating tax deductions for the target group. And although interest withholding tax may be paid at 10% on that, there's obviously a loss to revenue because it's shielding tax on the income where the tax rate is normally 30%. So they're particularly focused on how much debt you put into the structure and there are changes afoot in respect of our thin capitalization rules, which cover the amount of debt that is allowed for determining the amount of deductions. So that is moving from a 60% gearing ratio to a 30% EBITDA allowance. Those rules are out for consultation 
the second thing on a financing perspective they're focused on is the rate. And so there's transfer pricing issues as to what rate can be charged on that debt. The ATO has some practical compliance guides around safe harbour levels. The other part from a tech deals perspective where they do get focused is where there are intangibles in Australia and what is going to happen to those post-completion. The ATO is particularly concerned about intangibles moving offshore. So under Australia's tax rules, an Australian company, which can be a subsidiary of a foreign company, buys an Australian target, they can form a tax consolidated group and effectively get a step up on the tax basis of the underlying assets of the target. And so that can effectively step up the target's cost base in the IP close to market value. And so there may have been an inherent and uncrystallised gain on that IP, but by stepping up the tax cost effectively, that then allows the group to move that IP out of Australia and it may be to either a low-tax jurisdiction or wherever the acquirer group's IP is located. So those are the two main things they focus on. They don't want the IP going offshore in particular. Thanks, Toby. That is super helpful. I know we are always turning to you guys when our clients are looking to set things up and definitely approaching you early, particularly when FERB is needed, because we know they'll be communicating with the tax office and want to make sure we're explaining things properly. I think another thing that we have seen is very important to clients in the tax space, and particularly in kind of transactions where you've got a listed acquirer, perhaps picking up a smaller entity, is, is script for script rollover and how valuable that can be and various conditions. And we'd just be grateful for thoughts you've got and a bit of a script for script 101 for those who don't know what we're talking about here. The basic premise is whenever someone sells an asset and they crystallise capital gain on that, then they pay tax at that point. And that's regardless of whether they receive cash or they receive some other form of property. And so prior to 2001, where ever there was a script deal, shareholders were taxed on the value of the script they got at that date. The Howard government brought in rules to enable script transactions to effectively defer the tax until they ultimately sold the shares in the acquirer. There's a number of requirements. So first off, the acquirer has to acquire at least 80% of the target. And the second major point is that all the shareholders of a particular class have to be offered a chance to participate in the offer on substantially the same terms. So it's fine whether the offer letter is simply you'll be getting 100% script or a set percentage of script and a set percentage of cash. But often that's not what the target shareholders are seeking. Sometimes, particularly if you've got venture capital or early stage investors, they'll be looking for a greater cash component, whereas the management shareholders will often want to roll the dice again take some cash, but double down with the acquirer group. And so there has been an ability, because of the way the test is formulated, which looks at is participation available on substantially the same terms, for an acquirer to structure an offer so that shareholders can choose within certain caps and collars of available cash, available script, their preferred mix. What we have seen of late is the tax office taking a closer interest in these sort of transactions. The ATO at the moment are going through in much more detail what's actually gone on behind the scenes in the negotiations and the lead up and are looking at that issue quite closely. Thanks. That's That's super helpful. Sorry, Monica. That's really interesting, Toby. You can tell that Mia and I are both very excited about this topic. We keep wanting to jump in and ask you more questions. In particular, your comments around how do you provide a transaction that suits, say, founders and management and other shareholders? 
And I think that as we head into territory where valuations in the current climate are not as stable and there's certainly changes to valuations, we were talking about that a little bit on our prior episode around Asia Pacific with valuations changing. I think that looking at the various options of what consideration can be offered becomes of even more importance. And another theme along those lines is around earnouts. Now, I think given the current market conditions, earnouts are becoming increasingly more common as a mechanism to bridge value gaps. And I know that there are tax considerations with respect to earnouts, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on those, Toby. The taxation of earnouts is unfortunately, again, not straightforward. If it was, I wouldn't be in a job. So up until about 2013, the way the earnouts were taxed was just going back to what I said previously, how a capital gain is determined. Taxpayers were assessed on whatever the cash they receive up front plus the value of any property they receive. And the ATO's long-standing view of an earnout is that the earnout is property and that as a selling shareholder, you're therefore taxed on the value of that earnout. And so you would effectively pay tax on whatever that market value was. And then when you received further payments, you would have separate CGT events arising in respect of the earnout right, which created some interesting dynamics because an earnout is used where there's a difference in expectations between what the value of the asset is. The buyer thinks it's worth a lot less. The seller thinks it's worth a lot more. And because of the way the ATO treated this from a tax perspective, effectively those roles were flipped because the sellers were therefore trying to get a really low valuation on the earnout and then pay tax if and when the earnout hurdles were hit. So it has created always some uncertainty as to exactly what the outcomes from a pure dollar perspective would be, and you'd be relying on a third-party valuer to determine what those amounts would be. So some rules were introduced to effectively overlay that regime where certain conditions are met, effectively tax on a look-through basis. So that any payments you receive under the earnout are just taxed back as part of the original sale consideration. And so shareholders would go back and amend their earlier tax returns as and when they received that cash. The way the rules are drafted, as always, is complex and it can sometimes be good to bring yourself within those rules where you're selling shares in a company. But if you get within them, it's certainly a preferable ratio. Amazing. Thanks, Toby. That is really helpful. I know I've often been a little confused about when exactly they get taxed and how they value. So it sounds like it's a fairly <laughs> valid response given there's been a bit of change over time. I think not dissimilarly to earnouts, another structure that we regularly see around bridging value gaps, but also around creating go-forward incentives for perhaps key management who may be founders or you might want to stay with the business is a similar deferred payment for linked to retention of key employees or key management. And similarly to earnouts, I understand that there can be some complexities around how and when these are taxed and definitely something to keep in mind when putting these arrangements in place. Yeah, any thoughts you've got on that would be much appreciated. So there's a tension often between the founder group who are rolling on and the investors who are looking to cash out as much as possible as to how much of the total consideration that's set aside by the buyer for ongoing incentive payments to management. The tax tension is that from shareholders' perspective, such as a founder who is going to be rolling forward. Under Australia's rules, there's a beneficial regime for capital gains where you're selling an asset which you've held for more than 12 months. You get to reduce the capital gain by 50%, which reduces the maximum effective tax rate from 47% down to 23.5%. So the issue here is if they're receiving some form of 
deferred consideration, which is tied to the continued employment of one or more individuals. The issue is, is that payment really just employment income? If the payment is going across all shareholders and you've got some employees and some professional investors, then it's less of an issue that a payment tied to the ongoing employment of a particular founder is going to be employment income of that person if it's being shared across all shareholders. But where you've got only one or two or three founders and they're the only people selling and there's a retention payment, which is, for example, if it was me and Malika and myself as the sole shareholders of a company and there was a retention payment whereby I might miss out on a third of the capital proceeds if I leave, the issue is, is that one third payment really just employment income for me? Whereas if it was tied to the three of us going forward, it's probably less likely to be employment income. But it's just something to be mindful of and trying to make sure that it really is capital proceeds and not going through the P&L as employment income. I should say, Toby, that nobody here on this podcast is leaving. Um, no. no one is allowed to leave, not me, not you, Toby, and I certainly have no intention to leave. But that's super helpful and I think really highlights the importance of ventilating some of these issues early on in the transaction when structuring and, and when consideration is being discussed, just so everyone understands the consequences and where it will land. I think that the next area, and, and this is particularly relevant in tech transactions and particularly for tech companies at the earlier stage of their growth, where there are option plans in place to incentivize employees and that forms a critical component of employee incentivization and compensation. It's super critical to attract talent. Now, in the context of an M&A transaction, um, it's always complex and it's always one of those topics that's heavily discussed as to how it is that the options will be treated. What is the right incentivization going forward? How will the existing options be treated? Will people be compensated? Will they be accelerated? And I know that as part of those discussions, there are some important tax considerations as well. So we'd be really keen to hear your thoughts on that. And you and I have lived the dream slash nightmare on a number of different transactions. It would be great to hear some thoughts. Yeah, it's always complex and it's often unfortunately left until towards the end of the transaction. So it does depend a bit on what stage the company is at. The general rule with employee options is that these are taxed ultimately on exercise of the options or if they're cancelled. And at it at that point, they're taxed on the value of the option as income, going back to earlier discussion at up to 47%. However, in 2015, there were some concessional rules brought in for companies which qualified as startups as defined. And in those cases, the tax treatment is very favourable for employees. Effectively, they only pay tax as a capital gain as and when they sell the shares. And so they get the benefit of the CGT discount, so that 50% reduction, provided the option was granted at least 12 months prior to the sale. The definition of startup is quite broad. It's basically any company that's been around for less than 10 years and has done less than 50 million in turnover. So it certainly is available to companies that are in that mid-market and not just super early stage. But there is one requirement which can throw up a few hurdles, and that is that the scheme has to operate on the basis that the employee can't sell the option or the share for a minimum of three years unless either they cease employment or there's a whole of company sale and the ATO waives this requirement. And it's this 
a three-year disposal restriction having to go to the ATO to ask them to waive the requirement that is often forgotten or founders just have not realised that was a key part of their option plan rules. And so it does sometimes get brought up late in the piece. What the ATO is looking for is to see whether options have been granted any time after sale negotiations have commenced. And their concern is that somehow the company is orchestrating a way of delivering employment income as a discount capital gain. Now, it's pretty rare that you have a negotiation that goes on for more than 12 months that hasn't fallen over, but actually ultimately completes. So it's a pretty minor mischief that they're addressing here, but it's a pain that everyone has to go through effectively to ask for the lifting of this three-year disposal restriction. And it's just something that can be left until it can be done after the event, but providing certainty to employees of what the tax outcome is pre-completion is the preferred way forward. Yeah. Toby, I think to echo Malika earlier, the general theme is keep on top of these things early, make sure you're thinking about them don't drop them off the list and particularly, as you say, giving certainty to employees. We all have seen that period post-implementation of a transaction. There's already enough kind of uncertainty and change as it is and particularly in tech businesses where people are such a big part of your value to that business, you do want to make sure that people are feeling loved and looked after and embracing the transaction and not feeling like this has been a kind of negative experience for them. For employees who get access to the startup concession, that's usually set out in the offer letter. So for those who've actually read it and are aware of it, they are thinking, yes, I'm only going to be paying at most 23.5% of this ultimate gain and I've stuck around for all these years and it's a large payoff. For that to be flipped and then to be suddenly taxed at 47% on that is is not going to go well. And I remember when those changes were brought in and it was really about helping support the kind of local domestic tech sector because we were lagging behind some of the regimes overseas that had much more beneficial arrangements and it was just hard to keep talent. And so you don't want to undo that that valuable benefit just by forgetting to give a notice and have a conversation with the ATM. So no, super, super helpful. I think then moving on to things that lawyers love, but maybe not everybody else is good tax warranties and indemnities and obviously we see the on on all deals and tax risk is something that is often a big focus for buyers and sellers in all sectors but I'm just thinking about tech deals in particular and particular issues that come up in relation to tax indemnities and tax warranties I know that you live and breathe this every day because we're often emailing you for your input so I'm sure everyone would appreciate thoughts you've got on that so there generally will be a comprehensive tax indemnity as part of the overall share sale agreement and that's fairly standard for a lot of companies in tech sector particularly in that early to mid-market range they are still recouping their losses that they've been generating during their life so often their tax payable is probably less of a potential issue where from a purely tech perspective the ato is or has been showing a lot of focus is on the R&D tax offset arrangements in Australia for companies with less than 20 million in group turnover. Those expenditure on eligible R&D is refundable, effectively a supersized amount. And so there had been a spectrum of some abuse of it to just the rules have been fairly unclear, particularly in respect to software development as to what's eligible R&D. So that is certainly a key warranty to get because if you're having to refund 
actual cash payments. That's painful. And the other area is that during the COVID lockdowns, there was quite a lot of government support in the form of JobKeeper payments. And certainly specific specific warranties should be obtained in respect of JobKeeper payments to ensure that those aren't having to be repaid because the company didn't meet the relevant criteria. The only other one is pricing to the extent they've got offshore subsidiaries doing sales and making sure that transactions have been transacted at arm's length prices and you've got the relevant documentation to prove that. That's really interesting, Toby, and actually leads into the final area that I wanted to touch on, which is looking past completion of the deal. One thing we've noticed, particularly where the purpose of the transaction is to require a new piece of tech for the business Generally, we are seeing that companies restructure. They want to move IP to a central location. There's an internal reorganisation post the transaction. And I know from a number of deals you and I have done together, again, there are some significant tax considerations to keep in mind. It'd be great to hear about those. Yeah, so certainly as we touched on earlier, the migration of IP is something the ATO is concerned about. In fact, all Governments across the world are concerned about certainly some of the tax cases from the US where companies like Amazon have migrated some IP over to Luxembourg. And the key question there is what what's the value of the IP that's being transferred versus what's the cost base? And there is often a dispute as to that underlying value to ensure that the appropriate amount of tax is paid. Again, once it's over there, you've got to transact at an arm's length price and have documentation to support that to ensure that the royalty payment isn't excessive. The one thing to be aware of is the new government has announced that they are going to be denying Australian companies' deductions where payments for royalties are made to low-tax jurisdictions. So effectively, that's usually anyone has a tax rate of less than 15% or it's to a patent box, which effectively is without substance, which is interesting because that will often generally just be a country with which Australia doesn't have a double tax treaty and there's already a 30% withholding tax rate required to be remitted on those payments. So it's effectively double tax on those payments. So it's just something to be aware of in, in the planning stage. I would say, though, just coming back to your point about to a central hub, that there are perfectly understandable commercial reasons why that's the case, and those should be documented contemporaneously in the memos to boards because the ATO will want to see those in determining what's the driver for it, and hopefully it's not to save Australian tax. Thanks, Toby. Look, that's really good and good practical tip. As you say, they are usually very strong commercial reasons as to why that's the case. And I think it's a good practical tip to ensure that's documented, as you say. So I think we've covered quite a lot of ground. We could talk for a lot longer, but I am conscious of time. It's been really interesting hearing about everything from what's the regulator interested in, how to effectively get script rollover relief, how do you deal with bridging the value gap and the various mechanisms and what other tax considerations, of course, the taxing of options and the various topics around reorganisation and what should we care about in a sale agreement from a tax perspective. So thank you so much for all of those insights. Oh, pleasure. And Toby, I should say, for those out there who have not had enough of Toby Eggleston, you should definitely jump onto Toby's podcast, Tax Bites, which is great listening. We won't get into a war about uh, whether it's better than Inside Tech. We're one big happy family here at, at HSF. All podcasts are created equal. But Toby, maybe before we go, we do love to ask our guests, but what is exciting you in tech at the moment? I would say I've got two recommendations. 
if that's okay. Yes. Um, the, the first one is the Stratechery Plus podcast bundle or newsletter bundle. Ben Thompson of Stratechery um, is certainly, I'd say, the leading business tech analyst around and he's just expanded the tech bundle so it's including dealing with John Gruber and the Sharp Tech and now a China focused one as well which is really great that's certainly the best value from and required morning listening when it comes out and then the second one would be I've just started this book last night Chip War the fight for the world's most critical technology it's a new book by Chris Miller described as a non-fiction thriller equal parts the China syndrome and Mission Impossible so I'm looking forward to to getting into that. Wow, Toby, very good recommendations and plenty to keep us occupied. That's all the time that we have today. Thank you again for joining us on Inside Tech. Done deal. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode. Thanks, Malika. Thanks, Ben. Thanks. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.